going on? It's the Film Drunk Broadcast. I'm Vince Mancini. Welcome to another episode. Uh, this week, we got, uh, what's that movie called? Alien Covenant coming out this weekend. So we're going to talk the 1979 original by Ridley Scott, Alien. Uh, Patreon.com slash broadcast. Let me introduce my panel. We got back from the dead, the San Diego Hammer, Mr. Joey Avery. Oh yeah, it feels great to be back. Yeah, it does. You look great. Thank you. I've been moisturizing. You kind of got sex hair right now. Yeah, so well, I went and beat off in the bathroom. Okay, fair. So. <laughs> uh, we got the human giant, Mr. Brendan. This one's for my coming in that gangster lean, in that gangster lean. Are we do. Are we starting with all Comey puns uh, this month? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Fair, fair. And joining us via Skype, we got L.A. Matt, a.k.a. Matt Lieb, a.k.a. Skype Matt. What's up? I couldn't think of a Comey pun on time. That's, well, I, it wasn't a requirement. Believe yeah, well, I still wish I had known sooner. If I knew we were doing that, I would have said, oh, my hair's like this because I forgot to comb it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. I didn't know we were doing it, though. No. Also, coming up later, I got an interview I did with David Gran, who is the author of The Lost City of Z. Uh, he also had a book come out just recently called Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I'm going to talk to him about that. So that's going to be pretty cool. My favorite, my my favorite mo- movie with Lisa Kudrow is Comey and Michelle's High School Reunion. <laughs> thanks, thanks. That's good. All right, that's good, Matt. Really yeah, appreciate blow that. Me. Okay, blow me, Comey. Yeah. <laughs> oh, call, call oh. me, blow me. So we start out every show uh, with a segment that we like to call "Correcting the Wrong Things" uh, from the last show. Uh, so we had oh, a, so we, we have had, wrong things. We had a correction on uh, on the fifth element. This is uh, from the from the voicemails. Matt, just be quiet for a second. Hey, I'm just listening to the uh, fifth element episode right now. You guys are talking about the uh, two cue balls, <laughs> and I just want to point out the uh, they are underneath a pool table after he frees Ruby Rod from the balcony, and I'm pretty sure that they're just billiard balls that he rolls at him, not like weird. Uh, other things. So, uh, Matt, remember I hate this. You, you were t- you were talking about the two balls when when Corbin Dallas is uh is is yelling for the deaf actor guy to throw him the gun and he throws him the two balls. Yeah, and, I remember. And we were like kind of confused by the two balls. It was, it was because they were hiding under a pool table and they were pool balls, which that was not I readily said, apparent. I said this. I said this on the podcast. They said there were like pool balls or something, but they were magnetic or I don't know. Hey, hey, let's not get hysterical. I'm just saying, I know that movie by heart, and all of a sudden someone calls in and he's like, oh, blah, 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 Vince hates art. And I'm supposed to be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. Okay. Okay, thank you, though, for for the voicemail. Please call the uh, 1-800 broadcast. What's the voice number? (laughs) 415-275-0030. Email us, frogcast at gmail.com. And until next week, and good night. He just slips in his Pavlovian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be so dope if it ended, though. We got to do one of those one time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fake episode. Mm-hmm. Do it for April and Fool's. An hour and a half of silence. We've done mm-hmm. that before. We've done, well, we've done, we've accidentally not recorded, which is always good. That's different. Um, as far That's- as, I think, I think I can make this into a segue, though. So... If the fifth element was defined by like things that you didn't get on the first watch, I feel like there was a few things about Alien that I I haven't seen it. I don't know that I've ever watched it 
from beginning to end because it came out before I was born. And I, I, I'd seen lots of parts of it. Make sure I know you're pretty young still. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. I'm still a virile man. Yeah. I only take I only take Advil from my back like every every two or three days now. Yeah, that's so, good. You know, I'm still doing well. Um, there was a there was the the sky pilot thing. I definitely I I don't I don't think that I knew exactly what was happening there. They kind of like the whole. I feel like the alien is kind of defined by not hand holding. Like mm-hmm. the whole thing, you kind of just walk in, in and they're in the middle of, of conversations a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And then there was that whole scene where they're exploring this giant room, where uh, and apparently, and that's like basically what they made Prometheus about was who was the sky pilots, yep. and who was this? Like they they go to the planet, they're drawn to this planet that's uh, emitting a distress beacon. And, and then they find this, like, abandoned spaceship. And then there's, like, this giant weird room that looks like an H.R. Geiger painting. Because it basically is. And with a giant weird alien. With, with, a, giant, with a giant H.R. Geiger Yeah, drawing. spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then they find, like, a thing. And you can't tell. I couldn't tell if it was, like, a suit or uh, a corpse. But there's, uh, you know. It looked like bones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. So, anyway, that was, like, a giant spaceship where there was a sky pilot that yeah. had a thing burst through his chest. Yeah. So Ridley Scott did he did Prometheus and he did this alien, but didn't other people do other aliens? James Cameron did Aliens and David Fincher did Aliens Three. I thought it was very interesting because I obviously watched some of this one for this and I hadn't seen it, and then I I watched Prometheus and Ridley Scott did both of those, and I feel like they were both incredibly cutting edge, like just graphically, yeah, which is really hard to do from 1979 to yeah. 2014 or 15. Whenever yeah. he did that, that, that's honestly amazing. And I was watching this one, thinking, this—I mean, it looked—it looked pretty good now. Must yeah. have looked fucking nuts in 1979. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I kind of think Ridley Scott. Practical effects will never fucking let you down. They will never. They will always age a million times better than what other whatever other stupid. Effect. How many movies came right. out in the early to mid aughts? That are just like unwatchable now because it's so jarring in the moment when there's Lord of the Rings is perfect. The CG stays good. (laughs) I saw the new Alien Covenant and there's like the the you seen it? Yeah, I did. The CG Alien in the beginning looks it looks worse than a lot of stuff in this movie. Yeah, damn, fuck CG man. But I mean, it looks a little cheesy when it's like when it's like. Uh, slithering across the table after it oh, yeah, first yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. chest. Yeah. Looks bit. like they the used little... a magnet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the baby alien just slithering off. That was the dumbest shit I've ever seen. But other than that, it was. You're right. It was hella good. I think the key to good practical effects, though, is lots of like uh, slime. Yeah, mm-hmm. you get you get something with slime, and it looks it looks dope. I do think that. I mean, that's kind of where like CG isn't as good as not as textural like it doesn't have yeah, like they the can't same do slime <laughs> <laughs> they use ky for that which i read oh hot I'm, yeah. al- I'm always interested by the i mean I, th- I just think it's funny the types of alien movies we make because almost every alien movie is like oh turns out aliens like to eat us it's like <laughs> what is this alien doing just lurking around a spaceship like i just feel like eating you i mean well, although i guess born, if, it was born on the spaceship well, yeah, yeah that's true well, it was um you know, you find out in Aliens that it was a, a bioweapon. Uh, so it's like engineered it to murder. It was a bioweapon. So it's like engineered to murder everyone. 
Oh, that's kind of annoying. It's so rude. It's it's also like I feel like scary movies like that are just our our top of the food chain porn where it's like, oh, we eat everything, but what if something ate us? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. like it. I, I did like the way in the the space pilot scene, um, it's they explored enough, but they move on quickly enough that it's still kind of tantalizing, right? And that's actually what I really loved about Prometheus because a lot of people hated Prometheus, and I can't really disagree with them um, because there was a lot wrong with Prometheus. Yeah, but I still the I would say like a huge reason why I love Prometheus is because it explored the fucking sky pilot like that was so cool like that that scene has always stuck with me since mm-hmm. the first time i saw that movie so um I, I think we agreed basically on prometheus is that it's like it's really good like on a macro sense and then like uh kind of bad on a micro sense like every like a lot of plot points hinge on someone being like hey i farted in a jar you want to come smell it oh no <laughs> like why would you yeah. smell that um, I mean there's literally a scene where they're like oh, let's take our helmets off yeah yeah so they do that in the new one too basically like they just uh, go explore this planet with no helmets on and like they didn't cheat like that in the in the original like she was yeah. pissed that uh, they came back from exploring the planet and she's like what the fuck are you doing you can't come in here you gotta stay in quarantine yep and that seemed a lot more realistic than uh, either of the new ones <laughs> um, but I feel like this is like kind of the opposite of the fifth element because the fifth element is very much like sci-fi world building, whereas this is it's it's like a horror film, really. It's just really like a horror tense mm-hmm. and uh, claustrophobic, and really the it, it's kind of like a B movie, like the whole. I mean, it's it's all about the scares and the. Uh, so I've always thought of it as, as a horror movie, and and the way you said it now is like you say it almost in a surprised way. And a little I, bit, I guess, remember, in the like, context of like Prometheus and the new one, right? That's exactly what I was going to say. I I feel like the sort of loudness of Aliens um, kind of drowns out the fact that the first Alien is much more of like a slow burn. I I think it's a straight horror movie. It is, yeah, I, I agree. Aliens is an action movie, and I think they're both equally awesome. But it's sort of interesting that you can have two great movies in the same universe that are totally very different and also both very good. Yeah, but it is interesting where I think people get away from thing from realizing that like the original Alien is like a straight horror, it's a slasher movie, right? Yeah. And I replace think, the Alien with Jason Voorhees, right? And then you have Jason X, which yeah, is a great it's movie because you watch Prometheus and it's and it's typical Lindelof where he's you know pondering the meaning of existence, where he, like pretty much everything he makes is like where do we come from? What's going to happen? So it's like very big and it's, and it's got all these big questions. Whereas like alien is like, Hey, there's this fucking scary thing and it's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. By the way, Alex Jones referenced Prometheus uh, <laughs> as, as, as proof for his theory that there's like interdimensional beings. You listen to an entire amazing. Joe Rogan podcast with Alex Jones and Eddie Bravo, which has got to be, I did too. It was tar- it was hard to do. <laughs> I, it was I, hard to do. I was laughing my ass off. It the was whole time. hilarious. My, yeah. I, the people I've told was like Vince and Brett were both like, "Why the fuck would you do that?" And yeah. I, I laughed my ass off. The best part by far. Well, there's a couple really good parts. First of all, Eddie Bravo going. Everyone knows the Catholic Church has been abusing children. How come nobody's investigating this? <laughs> Which is amazing. It's like, um, did you see last year's Best Picture by any chance? Yeah. Then, then there's uh, another so part where um, there's another part where uh, Alex Jones is talking about how Obama's entire family was CIA, 
and Obama's a CIA <laughs> plant, and yeah. um, and then like some guy. Oh yeah, you can look it up. Yeah, look under it the up. Doc, you know? Under the documents. Yeah, and so and then apparently there's some guy who <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah, there's some guy who he calls a known communist and pornographer who he's like you look it up. This is in his book. Uh, and he like spent the I'm night at his sure house a couple that's times. That's definitely code word for Jew. Communist and pornographer. <laughs> yeah. that. But, yeah. but he goes. But he he goes. So he spent he spent the night in this guy's house. He's, he says it in his book. That's how arrogant these people are. Um, and then he goes, uh, and, you know, and his mother's in the CIA too. And Joe Rogan's like, oh, really? Like, what did she do for the CIA? And he's just quiet for a second. He goes, she was a sex operative. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right, though. Yeah, yeah. sounds really you, good. You can't prove that it's not right. And then Eddie Bravo the whole time is like just credulously. So first of all, Alex Jones like head fakes the birther thing where he says like the birther thing was actually a feint and that uh, Obama was born in Hawaii. But at the Wait. same time, he still gives hints that he was born. It's like he can't get every, he can't keep everything straight. Yeah. So then he's like, but then he's like, but, but that's not real. He was actually born in Hawaii, and and then he goes off on his whole tangent about this this known uh, communist and pornographer, and then Eddie Bravo goes, "Wait, but Alex, I thought that." Barack Obama was raised by the CIA and trained in CIA camps. He's like, well, that's true, too. Well, so here's the thing. Now, when these people say CIA, you have to understand what they're talking about. True. So he's got this amazing, like, I don't, well, amazing is giving me a lot of credit. We're, but we don't know if it's true. We're just asking the question. No one has he, asked the question. He can, like, train, he, like, knows all the conspiracy theories and he can make these two opposing things be true at the same time by. By going like, well, not in a literal sense, and so yeah. he'll he'll go like, you've literally got these psychic vampires who are sucking the essence out of our children, and then Joe Rogan's like, whoa, hold on, back up a second. What do you mean? He's like, well, understand what I say. Uh, psychic vampires. I'm not saying it literally. I just mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny to me because I don't know how much the like non jujitsu world knows of Eddie Bravo because <laughs> I never heard of him. And that guy is a fucking idiot. <laughs> so like, like Eddie Bravo, he's good at choking people. He's good no. at choking people, and he's sort of pioneered his own style of jujitsu. So if you're training and like someone does something and it has like a really stupid ass name, you're like, oh, I know for a fucking fact that Eddie Bravo. <laughs> Came up with it. Oh, you go, you go, crackhead to mission control. Like yeah. every single thing he does, has to slide your heel into a pizza gate, yeah. <laughs> which is fucking dumb. Because like the best thing about jujitsu is that it throws out all the Japanese names from judo that you can't remember. Because I'm not gonna fucking remember like what an Osotogari or like oh, that's like oh, there's like a couple that are that it's retained like Omoplata or Kimura. Well, Kimura's a guy, yeah. but, but then like Eddie Bravo comes in, he's got like mission control and crackhead and like. <laughs> Monkey, monkey fucker I don't even know what they are and like anything with a stupid name that doesn't tell you what it is most jujitsu things just tell you what they are oh it's a fucking triangle choke it's a head and arm choke it's right it tells you it's in the name of what it is which is probably what the Japanese names do in Japanese which right. is probably why they're easy to remember if you're Japanese I just think but not Eddie Bravo yeah. he's like this one's called a building seven yeah I just think that 10th planet <laughs> jujitsu is a really interesting name for a guy who probably thinks the earth is flat uh, by, the way, by the way they're also drinking whiskey and smoking blunts the entire time and at one point alex jones alex is like Joneses? yeah alex jones is too and you can hear him. first of all first of all alex jones breathes in an alex jones voice like like first of all, you know alex jones is on the fucking episode because you downloaded it and then but still like there's this long ass intro where joe rogan's like 
my next guest doesn't need an intro. He, and you just hear Alex Jones like. And yeah. And so, so they're like, by the end, they're so fucking high. And Alex Jones is like, I talked to a NASA employee. And so, his, by the way, Alex Jones, this is fantastic. <laughs> The moon landing was faked, but we also landed on the moon, which is <laughs> yeah. great. It was really good. Yeah, and so he's I like going that. on about that, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Eddie Bravo goes, "Tower Seven! <laughs> just out of nowhere. Yeah, just out of nowhere. And the, Joe Rogan's like, "Shut the fuck up, man!" Yeah, the entire episode was Joe Rogan going, "Okay, calm down, yeah. slow down. Let's look this up. Let's yeah. try and see. because he throws out so many things, and like maybe one of them." Mm-hmm is actually an interesting thing well, to you, follow. And you then see the why Donald Trump not. loves him so much because he's just like going from subject to subject and just avoiding any kind of like deep questioning on it where like he'll just make some wild claim. And like he multiple times in the same sentence, he'll go like, Hillary Clinton is the biggest serial killer on the planet that's ever lived. She chops up little babies. Well, she's not literally chopping up the babies, but you have to understand what we're saying when we talk about that. Um, and and like Joe Rogan will try to reel him in, so it's kind of funny where he's like, "No, come on, that's bullshit." And he's like, "No, it's real," uh, but <laughs> which then, is so annoying because it totally um, it totally poisons uh, anybody from thinking about the times that she did kill people, which are also, like, important. Yeah. But, like, so everybody just assumes that every... His inst- name is Seth Rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, Seth Rich and what's-his-name, Vince Foster. It's like, if you just... Now now everything sounds like Seth Rich or Vince right. Foster, even though she did, like, support a few coups and shit that, like... Right. You know, she's kind of buddies with Kissinger and did some bad shit, but... Wait, what? what the Vince Foster thing is real? No, no, no. I was saying you can't talk about her like coup in Honduras without people associating it with with Vin, oh. Vince Foster and immediately thinking it's bullshit. I because... thought you were saying that too. I'm like, I'm pretty no, no. sure the Vince Foster. No, 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 no. That one's like, bullshit. Wait, what yeah. happened here? I'm what, saying, what is this? I'm saying because like that one's out there and everybody knows it's bullshit. They're like they're less inclined to believe the ones that are actually have some validity to them. Yeah, don't forget the fact that. Hillary created ISIS. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Barack Obama is the founder ISIS. of ISIS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really interesting that right now. Oh wait, that's the president, not Alex Jones. Yeah, yeah, no, he said that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it is really interesting that right now, based on who we have as president, like who. Oh. <laughs> I feel like the news is the most interesting content on like out yeah. there. You know, like it yeah. makes Harry Potter look unimaginative. It's such fucking good content. It's just, I mean, like, it's great. Hashtag <laughs> content. This is the best fucking content. This is the golden age of content. This is the golden age of content right hey, now. Hey, if you look at Donald Trump, he's really, he's a content creator. <laughs> <laughs> he's a tastemaker. What I hate about it is that for sure, for sure, Donald Trump is taking a lot of pride in the fact that he gets high ratings for the news. It's like, and I hate that he feels you know he feels good about it you know he's like yeah you know i'm the reason everyone's ratings are good it's like yeah because you're a fucking spectacle (laughs) everyone likes to watch me because my mouth is perfectly round and i'm unable (laughs) to unround my mouth and that's the truth he does have a nice round mouth he can't he can't not have a round mouth when he talks it's always it's always an oh it's a rictus my mouth is a perfect circle it's a perfect circle there's never been a better circle, beautiful circle. I feel like I've been programmed where every morning when I look at the news, if there's not some major like 
like bomb dropping blockbuster piece of news. I'm like, oh, I guess nothing's going on it's today. It's just annoying though because every they tr- they're treating every single little thing like it's a giant bombshell and. We're, but if this were and, any and, other time, Vince, if this were any other time, any other president, um, you, you wouldn't – like these are pretty legitimate bombshells. If uh, Obama did this, the, the right would be going thing. crazy. That, I, I, I'll, yes, I'll that's true. The, I'll think the same thing and I'll be like, oh, man, I, I really hope the news isn't like blowing this out of proportion because we can't handle a bombshell every time. And that's not to say that you know um, the news doesn't make its living doing that. But, dude, the last few weeks have been insane. Yeah. Like, today's today's news was as bombshelly as the last news. Like, today, what was it? <laughs> yeah. Comey's memo? Yeah. That, that is the first bit of physical proof that he's trying to, like, that. That that's a that's something. That's a big deal. Yeah, well, that shit comes out, and then everybody in Congress is like, yeah, well, uh, I guess we'll see. Yeah, that's what pisses me off. It's like I, I like the the news media is like making a, a big thing out of pretty much everything. Even, whereas even, like Congress really seems to be like no. Yeah, even just, the the old maverick John McCain is like, well, he's the president, so if he wants to divulge classified information to Russia, he can do that, which what? is technically true. But like, <laughs> well, but, but I mean, I think he said that on a technically true, but he did tweet about he did he was one of the early people to tweet that story and was like if this is true this is deeply disturbing so he did yeah well what does that mean yeah. though deeply disturbing all right we're no all gonna actually fucking do anything yeah, yeah what are you actually gonna do about it well yeah. that i mean to me the the issue is that like how many uh more breaches of like policy and like long-standing uh you all know, of them uh, however in- infinity Infinity, nothing's gonna happen. All, all any sane fucking person can hope for is that the party that was so fucking incompetent that it lost an election to Donald fucking Trump wins in the midterms. Like that's the best. That's, that's the best hope you have. Like how can anyone? It's awful. This is the worst thing ever. You're making my dick hard right now, dude. Oh, yeah. it's horrible. Brendan is all of us right now, you guys. Brendan destroys yeah. the Democrats. <laughs> it's, it's also annoying. I'm like, going to do a mega thread later. Like last night, David Brooks wrote like a column of, of, in the New York Times about how the president's a child, and everyone's like, oh, man, did yeah. you guys see this fucking fire David Brooks column? It's like... <laughs> What pointing out that Donald Trump is a child is like a bombshell now? Like, yeah, what the fu- I agree with that. <laughs> like, get, no the, shit. The op-ed people, I and here's the thing: I appreciate that they gotta do. You know, like part of me is like, if that's your job, if I'm David Brooks, then yeah, I'm I'm writing this because these are these are good. These opinions are just fine. But mm-hmm. it's such a fucking cluster. It's it's a circle jerk. Dude, you know, like Donald his, Trump is his, gaslighting us. Also, he's a child, uh, and the and the president can't be trusted. It's like those did not need to be separate editorials. They're all the same fucking thing. We we know this. Now what? And, and the people who need to actually be uh, turned on to this uh, probably call the New York Times the Jew York Times. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the problem. Have you the ever? Problem is have, have media. You, no one trusts it. Have you ever? You been know why? It's because the Jews own it, man. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what they did? They fucking they took down Building Seven. 
have uh-huh. have you ever been on the Reddit subreddit r slash the Donald? No, I want it every single time something happens. I, I always want to. You see have to see it, and today it's all Seth Rich. Today it's just uh-huh. they, because they feel like they got a bombshell because some private investigator said something. Oh god! And so um, they're not. There's no. I, the day the day that R the Donald has one person go. Do you think, you know, open forum that he should have done that? So, so, so Seth Rich, I read the BuzzFeed piece about the private investigator who mm-hmm. sort of started the whole uh, uh, Seth Rich thing. And it's, it's like this guy who got fired from the D.C. police department. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been a Fox News contributor since uh, 2002. Oh. And one of his... Um, one of his uh, oh god oh here it is uh, in the, in the in 2007 in reference to a controversy over racial profiling and policing Wheeler pulled his eyes back on air to demonstrate what a quote Chinese male looks like <laughs> and in the same year on the Bill O'Reilly show Wheeler said that a quote national underground network of armed lesbians were raping girls. <laughs> Everything, oh, everything now has one. to be like a child pedophile ring. Like every, right, by the yeah. way, every single Alex Jones thing right. come, comes back to a child pedophile ring. I mean, and then they're like, the liberals are going crazy over this. Yeah, well, everything <laughs> always goes back to fucking. We've talked about this. Like every yeah. cult, like no matter what their high-minded ideals, like Jim Jones started out like he, you know they were they were feeding the homeless and they they're starting this whole socialist family. And eventually, he's like, oh yeah, also uh, I want to fuck everybody. Yeah, um, and then. We were talking about this with Fifth Element, where like the way that humanity uh, justifies itself to God is like we we show him we have to show her love, and then he gets to fuck God. Like for some reason, everything always goes back to fucking. Yeah, even Alien. <laughs> alien uh, fucks the uh, dude. He face, face fucks. She him. face fucks the dude. Oh, and then he heart fucks him. Yeah, and then he gets heart. He fucked. comes. He comes out of his chest. <laughs> no, it was actually it was actually intended to be kind of like uh like a violation, Sexual. like a rapey violation. They made um they made Ripley a, a woman. She wasn't a woman in the original script and they and they made the guy they didn't want to make um John Hurt's character uh a woman cuz they thought it'd be weird cuz it was very mm-hmm. like a really rapey scene and they wanted to sort of flip it like have right. the have the dude getting raped and then the chick being the hero. That's always nice. It's always nice. Side, side note, um how come after he gets his face raped and then How he come like, God <laughs> and then he and then he like he wakes up, they're like, Hey, <laughs> let's go eat dinner. That was they, a weird They move. thought he was okay. He had like a he had like a giant barnacle, scary barnacle thing on his face. Yeah, but it's like, you know, I, I felt like everyone was pretty willy-nilly also with the acid blood. Like, they're poking around at the thing, and, and they don't have any face masks on. I'm just thinking to myself, like, that's how accidents in the lab happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's with all true. Your, with, all your, with your years of lab experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. Matt yeah, yeah, yeah. More mean, like Matt I'm, Lab <laughs> safety. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Lab safety. You got him. Yeah. Yeah. Totally got him. Got him. <laughs> I like it. It's a good joke. Uh, I mean, yeah, but also, if they did think he was safe after you get face fucked, sometimes a nice meal is the right thing. I mean, what do you do? You're on a you're on a spaceship. Some guy has a weird alien mm-hmm. thing on his face. He woke up. He was fine. He woke up. He seemed to be fine. Though. He wasn't fine. He had just been face fucked. I, I, here's the thing. I figured most of them would be like, okay, we're gonna talk to you. Uh, we're going to quarantine you in this room and talk to you and see how you do. We're going to check your vitals, make sure like n- there's no hospital in the world that like, if you're in a fucking coma, 
that they're immediately going to be like, let's stuff this fucking fucked face filled with food, you know? <laughs> stuff this <laughs> fucked face filled with food. Yeah, that's true. <coughs> true it's and like, good alliteration. I will say about this movie, to me it kind of reminds me of uh, Super Troopers where it just has one standout scene. And, like, no matter what happens in the movie, like, you're always going to remember that scene. So, it's, like, it's one of those movies that has a scene um, memorable enough that the rest of the movie almost doesn't matter. Wait, what scene are we talking about? The, the chest the burst scene. I mean, I remember oh, that, like, no, I meant from, from childhood. Super Troopers. Oh, in Super Troopers, it's <laughs> the beginning scene where the guy swallows the weed and they're on the, on the chase from the cops. And the cops are fucking with him. Littering yeah, but also and, the, the meow and. scene is good. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. And the leader of Cola. There's a lot of classics. I don't want a large pharma. <laughs> Did they ever come out with Super Troopers 2? They're making it now, I think. Oh. It's it's there's no way that's going to be that good. That was just like the ultimate clickbait thing. It's been a like, clickbait thing for like five years. Every time you write a fucking Super Troopers 2 article, it gets like a million shares on Facebook. And it's like, man, they've been talking about this for so long at this point. But hey, whatever. People on the internet like stuff. The President's Child! Super Troopers 2 is coming out. Building 7. Anyway. Avocado toast. Millennials can't buy houses because of avocado toast. (laughs) Hey, what's up? This is my interview with David Gran, who wrote uh, The Lost City of Z, and more recently, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is about uh, this sort of conspiracy to kill uh, off these the members of this Indian tribe for their mineral rights. Uh, anyway, it's a pretty good interview. Uh, if you want to check it out again, that's David Gran, and the book is called Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, so, can you tell me how you decided on the subject? Sure. Um, oh, okay. Are we recording? I was just <laughs> yeah. blathering on. Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> casual. It's great. Um, so, um, uh, I decided on the subject. You know, I heard about it back in uh, uh, 2011, um, and a historian had mentioned it to me, and I had never heard of the story then. I, I didn't know that the Osage had been the wealthiest people per capita in the world because of oil under their land in Oklahoma, and I had not known that they had been mysteriously murdered, and I did not know that it had be, the investigation had become one of the FBI's and one of Jagger Hoover's first major homicide cases. All this was new to me, and... I traveled out to the Osage Nation oh, several months after that, and at that point I wasn't really thinking about a book. I was just trying to learn more about it and see maybe if there was a story to be told. And I visited the um, Osage Nation Museum at the time and noticed on the wall this great panoramic photograph that was taken in 1924, and it showed members of the Osage Nation were white settlers. Um, and it looked very innocent, but there was this portion of the photograph that had been cut out looked like someone had taken a scissors to it. And I asked the museum director, somebody who would later become a friend, uh, but I was just meeting for the first time what had happened to the picture. And she pointed to that missing panel and she said it contained a figure so frightening she decided to remove it. Hmm. And she then said the devil was standing right there. And she then went down into the basin and retrieved an image of the missing panel and showed one of the killers of the Osage um, during the 1920s. And the book really grew out of that kind of experience. For me, that was really a turning point, and for me, trying to understand who that figure was. Um, and it really led me to begin to dig deeper and began a five-year process that would, would that it would take to write and research the book. Right. And then what was uh, what was like the most modest account of the, the death toll 
That's a really good question. So, um, you know, when I read accounts at the time, um, the official death toll was usually listed at uh, more than two dozen. Um, that was kind of the official FBI uh, records. Um, and of course, as one begins to dig deeper, one began to realize that that death toll was was far too modest, and that uh, the number of killings was undoubtedly much higher. I mean, so the basic process was, you know, they would try to <clears throat> try to kill the native for their uh, what was the rights? Uh, head rights. Head rights, right? And then, uh, like, how many how many different plots? Like, were they all connected? Like, how many different uh, plots yeah. to do this? Do you think there were? Yeah. Yeah, so um, so just so let's have a little bit of context. So um, there were about 2,000 or so Osage um, on the tribal roll, uh, officially registered members of the tribe um, in the early 1900s. And each one of them was granted what was called a head right. And a head right was essentially a share in the mineral trust. And a head right could not be bought or sold. It wasn't like surface territory. Um, it couldn't be bought or sold. It could only be inherited. And this led to um, very Baroque, uh, multi-layered plots um, that were kind of played out over years um, in which um, people would come up with ways um, to steal or inherit those plots through murders. And the central theory of the crime and the way it was generally betrayed um, was that there was kind of a singular evil mastermind the so-called devil in that photograph. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the Bureau, the FBI's working theory about the case, and that he perpetrated, you know, was behind two dozen or so of the murders and had henchmen who assisted him um, in, in, in stealing these head rights and murdering off um, various people to get them. In fact, um, when you do more research and you spend time with the Osage and get evidence that they've collected over the years and you begin to spend time in the archives, you begin to realize that in a way the, the truth was far more disturbing, which is that while there was a very singular, well, I shouldn't say singular, while there was a very evil figure, mm -hmm. the so-called devil who did in fact orchestrate a very bloody murder campaign that involved, you know, certainly um, close to those two dozen murders, um, and they were interconnected in many cases. And um, he kind of wove this very elaborate, devious plot. Um, the truth, the really disturbing truth, was that this evil really lurked in the heart of many seemingly ordinary settlers, um, often prominent businessmen, um, bankers, uh, lawmen, uh, politicians who conducted similar plots on a smaller scale in which there were deaths in, in, in other cases, often just one death to a plot. Mm -hmm. um, and it allowed them, in their cases, in many cases, to escape justice and escape the law. Um, and so this really was much more about a story about not who did it, but who didn't do it. And it really is a story about a culture of killing. Right. It's almost like when there's one suicide in an area and it starts a, it's like a weird trend, but with murdering for inheritance. Yes. And to be honest, these crimes, even the singular, you know, that, 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 that the, the, 
the devil, the so-called devil, who was a mastermind of certainly one of the most bloodiest plots. Um, the crimes could not have existed. It wasn't just that it was contagious. It was that the corruption and the money was so large, the, 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 the fusing and the combination of greed and avarice um, involved many conspirators. So that these plots really couldn't also, not only were there many little plots taking place, none of them really could have taken place without the complicity of many others. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't like others didn't know about the plots. You had morticians who would cover up the crimes. You know, they wouldn't report, oh, there's a bullet wound in the back of the head. They just quickly bury the body. Um, there would be uh, doctors who might administer poisons. There were press who wouldn't cover the crimes. There were lawmen who didn't investigate the crimes because they were getting paid off, or they were also financially benefiting. Um, and on and on it went. And mm -hmm. so um, th that's one of the more kind of shocking elements of the story. It, you know, it's much easier. And the, the, the way I had I've written about crime stories in the past, and, you know, my general view of them, and the, it was more the way I kind of grew up with the view that's kind of portrayed in literature, which is, you know, there is a kind of a singular bad person who, who might have accomplices. The law comes in and removes that kind of cancerous force and society returns to normal. And it's much more disturbing and, and, and difficult to contemplate that many people might be perpetrating these crimes. Many seemingly ordinary respected people may be uh, complicit in these crimes. Right. Um, so in terms of narrative, I felt like this really had everything, you know, it's kind of, it had uh, a timely hook, it was a true crime mystery, and then you get to the end and you sort of, there's another twist that you, that you solve. I mean, obviously you can't get that with every story you investigate. Um, like how far have you gone with other projects that you ended up scrapping because they, you know, like you couldn't yeah. solve the mystery or if it didn't feel conclusive at the end? Yeah, so... Um you know, I do a lot of magazine stories, and, and there I try to be pretty... I, I, I do a lot of intensive short-term research often into projects early on um, to get a sense whether they're worth pursuing, if my early impressions about the story seem true, is the story more interesting or less interesting than I originally thought, um, is there a way to tell the story, will the people cooperate, is there documents or whatnot. And there I try to be pretty ruthless about getting rid of stories pretty quickly if I, um, because I only tell a few a year, even when I'm at the New Yorker magazine, whether they're worth pursuing and, 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 and embarking on a, you know, at least a two to three month quest and possibly mm -hmm. longer if it's really deeply investigative. Um, with the book, it's, it's a much more scarier prospect and a much more difficult prospect because um, you're committing to such a long-term investment of time and energy and resources into one story. And in this case, um, you know, it took me a long time to find the right story. I mean, my first book, The Lost City Z, was, came out in 2009. I had a collection of my stories published later in The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, but this was my next really full-length book. And I think that was a reflection of the challenge of really trying to find the right story that I thought was worthy of a book and um, kind of had the breadth and dimensions that I felt like a book really needed. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, you know, I did a, about a year preliminary research where I was still working at the magazine at the New Yorker doing other stories while I was just collecting information to see what might exist. Is there really enough underlying documents to tell the story? I certainly wanted to tell it after I visited the museum, but I needed to figure out 
you know, this is a piece of history and what records existed. And that involved a process of doing FOIA requests and uh, Freedom Information Act requests mm-hmm. and tracking down descendants of the murderers and the victims to see what documents they might have. And then after a year, I kind of committed to the process. Um, and what I had obtained at that point was really just a fraction of what I would need. But it was enough to at least tell me, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to kind of take the plunge. And then I'll, I probably took me another year to really feel like, okay, I think this is yeah. a book. How many different research projects do you tend to have going on at any given time? Well, when I'm doing the magazine stuff, when, once I settle into a story, I'm somewhat mono-focused I, to my own detriment. I mean, I wish I could juggle more. Mm-hmm. Um, I look for story ideas the whole time, and I'll clip them or rip out newspaper articles or email myself thoughts, and, and then I'll. But I, I won't focus on them. And then when I finish a project, I will go back and look at them. I mean, for before I began the book, I certainly was working at the New Yorker because at that point, I really was just collecting documents to see what existed. Um, once I kind of settle into a process, I'm pretty mono focused. I wish I had a brain that could. <laughs> was more adept and <laughs> yeah. to juggle multiple thoughts. I find it very difficult to do that. I wish I was better at it. I'm always impressed by people who can do that. Right. Um, do you have a preference for writing about the living or the dead? Uh, it feels like this <laughs> felt like it was kind of in between and there seems like a different set of challenges. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, you know, I certainly began writing. I mean, I studied history in college and so I've always, you know, read a lot of history and been deeply interested in history. But beginning as my career as a as a reporter, you know, you you inevitably cover things with news pegs and contemporaneous events and um, and and the living and um, and it as I got deeper though into narrative reporting, I began to become less consumed with the idea that a story needs to have a momentary news peg and mm-hmm. that if a story is important worthy fascinating um that it has real stakes it doesn't matter exactly when or where it took place and um and so that has led me into historical narratives um you know i think the lost city of z was in some ways doing that book was the beginning of that because it had a part of the book is told in the present with my own journey into the Amazon and uh, half the book is historical and researching the story of this explorer who disappeared in the Amazon Um, and I think you know it probably gave me more confidence to do this kind of thing so I I like the freedom of, of, of seeing a story that is worth being told and not feeling that it has to be of the moment. Um, but the challenges of telling the stories are very different. And I would say that reporting a story in the present um, is is easier. I mean, it just is it, mm-hmm. in terms of the time, because I really want the stories to have an immediacy in the way they're told. And if you're dealing with archival information, that process of of constructing a narrative is just time consuming. Just to give a small example, you're reading a document and you suddenly say, you know, the investigator showed up on the stoop of somebody's house. And then you say, wait a second, did they have a stoop? <laughs> right. And then you go try to find pictures. And then, you mm-hmm. say, well, and then if you can't find a picture, you say, well, 
I, they don't have a stoop. I better rewrite that sentence and say they showed up outside the door. <laughs> and yeah. you go through this kind of interrogation. Every sentence gets interrogated where if it's living, you know, I can write the scene and then just call up the person and say, I just want to make sure, did you have a stoop? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that could take me two minutes where the archival process of, of trying to be sure that I'm you know, being fastidious could take me weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just a very a much slower process. I will say there are certain advantages to historical stuff, though, because you have the benefit of, of hindsight. You have the benefit of more perspective. And I think in some ways you're freer to tell the story because, you know, it, no matter how much you when you write about living people and you deal with them, people always talk about political bias in stories, mm-hmm. and I always kind of laugh because I think you can, you know, political bias is something that's really pretty easy to, you know, overcome as long as you're kind of being honest with yourself in, in telling a story. Um, what's more difficult is what I call personal bias, which mm-hmm. is that you get to know people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, even when they're really villainous individuals, <laughs> you've spent a lot of time with them. And it's, it can be a difficult process to be entirely uh, frank. Um, where with non-living people, you can be—it's almost you know—it's a little bit easier to be blunt in a way. Right, <laughs> and you don't have to worry about them bullshitting you. Yes, you don't have to worry about bullshitting and spinning. And mm-hmm. there is a there is a certain freedom to 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 just there is a freedom in the way one accesses the information. Um, and a more honesty, a kind of a more bluntness about it. Like if someone is just a downright racist and you just see the racism in their text, and, mm-hmm. you know, you just, you just come out and say it and you, you know, you could just, you're very direct. Right. Um, and, uh, where if you're interviewing someone and they're giving you a spin and it just, it doesn't mean you're not as honest, but it just, it's just a different, it just adds a different challenge. So I, I yeah. guess the answer to your question, both have both their 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 challenges um and 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 some things are easier and some things are harder right i mean speaking of personal bias like even in film criticism people are always like oh you know they're they're getting paid that's why they didn't like this movie or that movie and i'm always like all all they really have to do is invite the critic to the party and (laughs) automatic like automatically like they're gonna get a nice review just because they they like saw that person that's that's really like all it takes yeah, so, yeah no, I mean, I think I always say to people that is the hardest thing. Uh, that's the bias. It's the hardest one to overcome. And mm-hmm. that's to be, because if, especially if you spend months with somebody, um, and it's very, and it can be very difficult, especially when you're exposing something about somebody who you yeah. spend time with. Um, and, you know, it's just not a very comfortable process. It doesn't mean you don't do it and you have to, you know, be unflinching, but, you know, it's a, it's its own challenge right um so this story it takes place uh like at the end of world war one and then sort of going to the 20s and 30s um it seems like some of the darkest chapters of of racism not just like in the u.s but all over the world happened in between the first and second world wars like do you what do you think was going on during that time period do you think it was special in any way that it was that people were able to easily dehumanize each other at that point in time you know, it's a really good question, and I would want to give a thoughtful answer about that, because I don't know if I know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I tend to think human nature has been fairly unchanged over centuries, both the good and the bad. This is just, again, a general hypothesis without 
yet getting to specifically your question, right. you know, that both the grace and the savageness of the human heart is kind of unchanged. But what has changed is certainly societal forces, but most of all technology. And so certainly one of the things that made the prejudice so destructive uh, in that period of the 20th century was the fusing of it with technology. And so mm-hmm. Hitler has the capacity to exterminate, um, you know, on a mass scale, uh, millions. And on the case of the Osage murders, um, you know, there are the means of uh, both, you know, gunfire, uh, there's a bombing, uh, poisonings are widespread and very devious ways to cover up crimes. Now, certainly some of these things like poisonings go back further back in history, but but um, you have certain means, but um, and there certainly was, I mean, there are certainly periods of, of, you know, deep prejudice, but I don't know if I know the answer, if I have enough breadth of history to know, I mean, because you certainly have slavery in the United mm-hmm. States going back, and you have certainly the earlier clash between settlers and Native Americans, and mm-hmm. brutal. I mean, what's striking, though, is that these forces are still playing out in the modern era, and not that long ago, and in many ways is the level of destruction uh, certainly thinking of World War II, mm-hmm. um, Hitler and Stalin are just the, the numbers of deaths are just unbelievable. Right. Um, and you, you were talking about not being bound by timely pegs to storytelling, but I, I was sort of struck by this story being about the FBI coming to police local law enforcement. And then, and then now Jeff Sessions, like his first thing he said he wanted to do was to scale back federal policing of local police and he wrote that it's not the responsibility of the federal government to manage non-federal law enforcement agencies um do you think like this book speaks to why that might be necessary uh how much relevance do you think that it has right now yeah well i think a couple of things i mean i think you know one of the things that i was shocked about because i am in many ways a generalist when i i tend to never really want to write about exactly the same thing again. So mm-hmm. part of the process of when I get into looking for stories is I don't want to write the same story again. Um, I didn't want to just do another adventure tale uh, for a book. I wanted to find something different that would have its own challenges and rewards. And one of the things that I was really shocked about was just how lawless um, this country was back in the early 20th century to a kind of surprising scale how poorly trained so much of law enforcement was, and also just how widespread corruption and prejudice was. Um, It was very easy for the powerful to tilt the scales of justice. Locally, in a place like uh, the frontier, this kind of remnant of the frontier, um, you know, the powerful were able to really tilt the scales of justice. And there was so much corruption, just to give an example, the the Oklahoma governor at one point sent in its top state investigator to investigate the Osage murders. And within, you know, a few weeks, he's seen carousing with criminals. He's caught taking a bribe uh, for, uh, he's then tried and convicted of taking a bribe. Um, And within a few months, he's pardoned by the governor. um, And he walks out of prison and he goes, commits murder. (laughs) Yeah, um, and, just, and this was the top state investigator. So just uh, that's just a snapshot. I mean, this, <laughs> this is just one illustrative story, but there are many like this. And um, and I think one of the things, and I think with we're seeing it with right now, not just with 
the local policing and um, you know making sure that there are kind of uh, reforms and um, you know if there are violation of civil liberties these issues are addressed um, the need kind of for checks and balances um, but the the most important theme that I kind of came across from the book back then which I think is still so resonant today which is how important it is that we be a country of laws mm-hmm. and and that and also realizing how fragile that is. You know, I always just kind of assume, you know, these institutions were much stronger than they were. And you realize that less than a century ago, these institutions were so weak. And you see the system really being tested now in many ways. And, you know, will the system be strong enough? Are the institutions strong enough? Now, I don't know, you know, enough about what Trump did yet. But, <laughs> you know, if he did obstruct justice, are the institutions strong enough to, to deal with that? And, and, and that's why it's a very unnerving time. And, and I do think that is a really deeply resonant theme from the book and that nobody is above the law um, because these crimes went on for years because of prejudice and because the powerful were able to tilt the scales of justice. And um, that was one of the things I just took away with and that this wasn't that long ago. And it's been a kind of, you know, we think of everything as just kind of a line of inevitable progress. And the, and the line of progress of building these institutions has been, you know, two steps forward, a step back, right. steps forward, step back. It's not been, you know, uh, you know, and again, I'm not an expert on, 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 on the civil rights, but you, you know, it's just, it's a, it's the arc of justice has been long and still goes on. And I'm certainly more familiar with this case that I wrote about with the with the Osage Indians, and you, and you know you saw it with the FBI with Hoover that this case in any ways instituted certain professionalism in law enforcement that was really important and created certain standards and created the use of scientific detection. On the other hand, Hoover used this case to kind of mythologize himself and then to use his power often to corrupt the system of justice. Right. And so both the both the positive and the negative. And so, you know, we just assume that these institutions are strong, and, and hopefully they are, but one of the things the story tells you is that there really is a struggle behind making these institutions work. They can't be taken for granted. And it wasn't that long ago where it was very possible for somebody to, you know, to basically exterminate you know, a people, mm-hmm. um, and a genocidal crime. And we're able to get away with it, uh, for uh, years, um, because of, because the legal system was not able to address these, these injustices. Right. And one of my other questions was about J. Edgar, Her- J. Edgar Hoover and, um, sort of having him a, as a background character in the story. Uh, like how much did you have to resist the temptation to sort of go down, that rabbit hole and and like were there any other interesting side narratives that uh, that you found really interesting but you couldn't really include because they weren't uh part of the central narrative yeah i mean what's interesting is you know i wanted this story you know whenever you do the other challenge about writing about history when you're doing narrative history is you do a ton of research um and then you have to kind of winnow out the research because you want to have all the information so that you can convincingly and authoritatively describe what's happening. But 
and enough backstory so that it, there's context that makes sense, mm-hmm. but you're not going to write a thousand page digression um, <laughs> right. about about the Bureau or about Hoover. Um, and for me, one of the interesting things was just to be able to see Hoover in this very early formative stage of his career. Um, and you could see all the kind of ingredients of his of his character playing out that would obviously have um, um, you know larger import. I mean, what's interesting in this case is the bureau initially badly bungles the investigation into Osage murders. They don't make any arrests for two years, and they get this informant out of jail, a uh, guy named Blackie, who you know they want to use as an informant. Instead, he robs a bank, kills a police officer, <laughs> yeah. and so Hoover is afraid of a scandal. And it's what's what's hard to believe, and what's what's interesting to see is you know we only know Hoover as this autocratic bureaucrat, which he would certainly become. But in this moment, there was an insecurity to his power, and he was trying to cement his power. He'd just become director in 1924 at the age of 29, and so to see some of that insecurity, see the fear of scandal threatening him. Um, and he kind of takes on this case um, partly out of out of you know unwanted necessity. Um, mm-hmm. He had tried to kind of dump the case back on the states because he couldn't solve the case, and he thought, oh, there'll be criticism. Then there's the scandal with Blackie, and he thinks, oh my gosh, I better get my men out there to do something. Um, and so you see kind of what motivates him, and 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 I should say you see some of the lawmen um, who I thought you know especially this. Person I write about Tom White, who ends up leading the undercover operation, who has a real kind of quiet goodness to him. Yeah. Um, there were certainly elements about the Bureau that I tried to hint at without going into them, knowing the reader would have a certain knowledge about them. But, you know, the fact that, you know, Hoover would later, you know, in the 70s and, you know, later infiltrate the um, the, the American Indian movement. And so, you know, you just see again, which I'm getting back to that question of kind of steps forward and steps back. Um, and so you could see the kind of corruption of that power. And, and you could see as, as an older man, the way he kind of treats, uh, Tom White, the investigator at the end of his life by never kind of acknowledging, Mm -hmm. giving any credit to him, kind of, you know, not being bothered by him. Um, I thought sometimes it was oddly enough in those very small human moments that I you, I got a better sense of Hoover, and I thought you could kind of reveal Hoover. Um, I thought the way he treated Tom White um, in his letters and communications with him at, towards the end of White's life, I thought was very re- revealing. Um, there were other elements that I didn't get into that were digressions that weren't so much about the Bureau, but... Um, uh, get to this issue of prejudice at the time. Um, you know, one of the things I kind of stumbled upon, which I also didn't know about, was the Tulsa race riots in the mm-hmm. 1920s. I think it was 1921, if my memory serves me. But um, it was around the same time. might have been a little bit earlier. And, um, and, and, you know, this was just one of the worst race riots in American history. And it was another uh, element that really wasn't well covered. And I kind of came across it because one of the private eyes who ends up working on the Osage murder cases, who is dubious and suspected of being corrupt, had actually been a lawman during the race riots and was kind of disgraced for his handling of them. And so I kind of went down a hole and then it didn't really, you know, there wasn't really a place for it in the book. But I, as I was doing that research, I thought, well, that could be another book. <laughs> I mean, you could have done like an entire history of just the private eye. Like, I mean, that was, yeah. that was, that felt very new, just understanding uh, how that subculture worked at that point and how widespread it was. Yes, yes. I I had not known that. You know, it's funny because I'd always read about the private eye more as kind of this figure in literature and, you know, just kind of assumed that the prevalence was partly just because they were kind of 
cool and you know <laughs> there's kind of a, a kind the of a cops a that don't play quality. by the rules yes exactly <laughs> but that that it really also was a byproduct of the lawlessness that because citizens couldn't count on professional law enforcement they often turned to private eyes if you had the means um of course many of these private eyes turned out to have criminal backgrounds and have um you know be tempted by the highest bidder and uh, and had some some of the similar problems, which is why they eventually, while still kind of a figure in literature or myth, are no longer the dominant forces they once were in society. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, I'll, last question before I let you go. Um, sure. So, you searched through the Texas archives to research a lot of this book, and you did uh, freedom of information requests. Uh, is there going to be a time like when my sort of Google generation has to go back and like relearn some of these research skills? Like, are you doing, are you doing anything to try and pass down these sort of skills to the <laughs> next generation of writers? You know, I, I but you know, the funny, it's funny. Um, you know. I, I, for me, it's all a little bit new. I mean, I think the biggest thing is just the time and the shoe leather. I mean, I think, you know, making the journey to the archives because they're not always well cataloged. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really think it, some of it is just the doing. I mean, it's, I mean, sometimes it's finding, you know, I'll use the internet sometimes to figure out maybe where um, there might be materials in archives, but the process of kind of going to the archives and just literally spending the time. I mean, I, I don't know if there's really any secret. I mean, it's really part of it is just bearing both the cost of the trip and then the tediousness of it. Because, for example, in the Fort Worth archives where I spent weeks and weeks pulling our uh, materials, you know, so many days I would just pull records that really weren't relevant. I mean, I hope they might be. Uh-huh. And then one day you'll pull a file and there will be the secret grand jury testimony uh, for many of those age murder cases that, to the best of my knowledge, had not been um, made public before. And it was kind of just like slipped into a folder. It wasn't even cataloged. And what's so revealing about that kind of testimony is because unlike many of the trial uh, testimony where people will just say yes or no in grand jury testimony, they'll actually give long detailed answers and you can actually hear their voices and get a real sense of who they are. Um, and then you might be going along too. And, um, you know, one of the things I describe in the, in the, in the book that was very revealing was this kind of ledger like document. Um, it's a little hard to explain what it was, but it was essentially the Osage had guardians, which was a reflection of the prejudice at the time. The U.S. government required many Osage um, to have white guardians manage their fortunes. This was a very racist system, um, mm-hmm. and it also led to a kind of a criminal enterprise where many guardians went to money. But in any case, I was pulling records. I wanted to just check whether uh, a guardian, the name of a guardian for a certain Osage, and I pulled the guardian records, and I found this booklet that covered a few years, and all it basically had was the name of the guardian with what they would refer to as the ward, the Osage ward that they were in charge of, and I put that in quotes. Um, and I was just looking at it, and I noticed that there was a guardian. I noticed they had five Osage under them. And if the Osage had died, somebody had just scribbled the word dead next to the name. <laughs> and I was looking at this, I noticed this one guardian at five Osage, and I noticed the word dead, 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 written five times. Then I'd go back down, I'd look and see some other guardians' names, and I might see somebody with 10, ten wards, um, and then they had 10 Osage who they oversaw their fortunes, and then five of them had the word dead next to them. And this defied any natural 
death rate. Um, yeah. It doesn't say some of these deaths may have been of natural causes. I want to be careful about that. But when I looked into some of the deaths, they certainly raised suspicions. There were complaints by witnesses about possible poisonings or, or the money had been swindled. And you begin to realize, kind of looking at this document, that you're looking at the kind of hints of a systematic murder campaign. Mm-hmm. Had you not kind of been there and kind of pulled this document and looked at it, because it's a very forensic document. Unless you looked at it and saw that somebody had kind of scribbled in the margins the word dead next to the name, you really you, you wouldn't have had a sense of the breadth of, of the murder. So I think the real secret is, one, coming up with the resources, which is never easy mm-hmm. um, to be able to make these trips because it's so much easier and cheaper if you can do it online. And then the second thing is just spending the time to kind of weed through the records uh, because it can be a very tedious process. All right. Well, very cool. Uh, thank you uh, so much for talking to me. Oh, thank you for uh, doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, so I wanted to get back to Alien. So Siskel and Ebert, this is uh, this is this is their original review <laughs> of Alien, which was uh, which was uh, notably not positive. After those two films, it's not necessarily go on to get any mm-hmm. better. Last year, for example, we got a whole lot of strictly routine science fiction movies that looked fancy and had big budgets, but that really didn't have any more yeah. imagination than the old tried and true space operas of the 1950s. One of them was Alien, which was basically just an intergalactic haunted house thriller set inside a spaceship. Early in the film, though, there was one scene with real... So uh, Eber called it an intergalactic haunted house movie set inside a spaceship, which is true. He but it's hates really it for the same reason correct. Brendan loves it. It's fucking great, <laughs> though. I mean, it's great at being that. Yeah. Um, and then later he like wrote a re- he wrote like a review later where he thought where he thought it was great. Like, shouldn't you? Um, I mean, yeah, shouldn't you yeah. be held accountable for that? Yeah. It seems. Yeah, he- like- Go ahead, Matt. Oh well, I just remember also when what was the other one with Winona Ryder? Alien Resurrection. Is that it? Maybe uh, the 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 fourth Alien movie. There was a fourth Alien movie. Yeah, it's it's Alien Resurrection. I think I don't even remember yeah, Winona Ryder was in it, wasn't she? Yeah, totally Winona Ryder is in it. 1997. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. And yeah, and, written and, by and Joss Whedon. I totally I didn't even remember that was a movie. And did you see fucking um uh his review of uh Roger Ebert's review of that? There is not a single shot in the movie to fill one with wonder. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. And then, like, ten years later, he came out with another review, just like with the other one, where he was like, because <laughs> he had no jaw. I knew, I knew you were going to go there, and you, and, you still, and you still got me with it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. And he reviewed the movie Jaws, wistfully. But it's funny that like a lot of his later Alien movie reviews are like, oh, it doesn't have the, uh, it doesn't have like the, the wonder of the original. And it's like, dude, you you kind of bashed the original when it first came out. No? I always I always wonder what it's like for a director. So like maybe Ridley Scott was like, let's make basically a horror movie in a sci-fi setting, and then you hear someone ripping it as being like, you know, for a sci-fi movie, it's really just a horror movie mm-hmm. in a spaceship. And you gotta imagine he's sitting there going, yeah, that's what I fucking did. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. What I he was also, doing, and I nailed it. He also basically said it was like a big budget, like special effects extravaganza. Do you know how much it cost? <laughs> eight eight million dollars. Holy shit! Guy Ritchie's uh, King Arthur movie, I think, cost like a hundred and seventy million dollars recently. The, the uh, room cost six million. <laughs> the, what you I say? forgot? Yeah. I forgot Guy the Ritchie room. did the King Arthur movie. Yeah, he did. He did. 
Well, I'm going to put a sword out of a stone now, ain't I, Tommy? <laughs> it was kind of like oh. that. Someone called it like a Chav, Saint Ar- uh, Chav King Arthur. And I was like, yeah, mm. that's pretty accurate. I would have called it that if I was more familiar with the Chav sub- subculture. You what, mate? <laughs> oh, you what? You what? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, only, I only know that from the internet. So the recent movie, they they got Catherine Waterston, who is the, uh, the love interest from... Uh, from uh, Inherent Vice, who's very, very attractive. And they got her to play, like, the lead, and they gave her, like, the worst haircut. Like, they gave her the bowl cut, and I think they were somehow trying to mimic the, um, like, the androgynous quality of, of Sigourney Weaver. But, like, Sigourney Weaver didn't seem tough because she had a dumb haircut. Like, she was... Yeah. That was just like yeah. a natural quality. It's a really bad haircut. What? She seemed, she seemed, yeah. No, but not as bad as Catherine Waterston's, though. Oh. She seemed tough because she had the flattest ass I have ever seen. <laughs> ever, 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 ever. I mean, you, that was still kind of a hot scene where she was in her, like, the world's smallest was, underwear. It was, it was hot until until literally her her underwear is sagging. She It sags. <laughs> I've never seen underwear do that. But sexily. Not really. It seemed like her butthole is on the outside of her butt. <laughs> is that is that a bridge too far for Matt Lieb? <laughs> I can't. I, there's, if I'm going to eat the butt, I need to pull some folds. You know what I mean? <laughs> Hello, Matt. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> Your butthole's on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Meryl Streep and uh, Sigourney Weaver were apparently the, they were like the two top candidates for the lead role. Both of them went to Yale. And somebody uh, read the IMDb trivia section. I sure did. I yeah. sure did. Um, I, I I don't know. I think Sigourney what is, what Weaver. What is both of them going to Yale? <laughs> that was such a sports them. announcer fact. You know, both of them went to Yale. I was uh, getting to it. You guys let me finish. I, I bet they hate Harvard. 74. They wouldn't like you, Todd. No, she definitely has that quality of like. Uh, You're absolutely right. Of Murray, you know, <laughs> you know how Murray Abrams can only play like a guy who's very theatrical and like 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 certain <clears throat> people are so classically trained as actors that they're. You mean that that Murray Abraham? Yeah. Yeah. They're their diction is like so perfect that they they can only play a certain type of character like i don't think sigourney weaver's uh her like powerful quality came from like looking like they didn't try to man her up like that was just her natural like she she enunciates perfectly like she just has a certain she has a certain authority just, to her naturally and that, she just kind of looks why, like a dude <laughs> well she she's i mean like, she's like a hot dude yeah but she looks like a dude She's like naturally androgynous and like a in a sexy way. Yeah, I feel like, like a Sigourney hot dude. Weaver would be a good rap name. I was gonna say, is that her <laughs> actual name? Because Sigourney Weaver. Because I mean, that doesn't sound like a name that you come up with, right? Yeah, but also, it doesn't sound like a name that you'd name a child with. It is if you like send your child to acting school. Oh, oh. Susan Alexandra. Yeah, right. mm, there it is. You're right. Wow. It is a fake name. Uh, ha, ha. Susan Alexandra. Looks like she weaved up Sigourney herself. Why not? <laughs> you could also call someone with a really bad weave Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. That's a good burn. Feel free to use that, listeners. I already stole it. Fucking President of the United States Sigourney Weaver. 
Oh, I'm just saying finally. She's, she's born in Manhattan, went to Yale. She kind of has that quality. Uh-huh. She has that. She kind of exudes that old money. Yeah, if you're right, born in Manhattan, quality. you have to go by a name that's not your given name. <laughs> right. And she's also oh, my name's, we They call me Trace because uh, I'm actually a, yeah. uh, Sigourney Weaver the fourth. And yeah. she's also one of those people who's like, yeah, I'm the looking third, to do whatever. acting and film, though I've never watched TV in my life. <laughs> I wasn't allowed. Yeah. I mostly wrote books as a child. Mm. <clears throat> the whole the the whole thing with the temperature, I, I couldn't tell what she was trying to do with the temperature. Like she went on the shuttle. And the alien was like sluggish, and then she did something to like spray it with cold. No idea what that was about. Yeah. I didn't know what that was about, and I, I thought it was a callback to when they were trying to get the face hugger off the guy's face, and they're like, "Oh, we should freeze it." And I was expecting freeze freezing the alien to come back somehow, and I guess it did, but it didn't really like it was kind of hard to know what the yeah, hell was it didn't happening quite, there. Like link up. No. I also don't really understand why the alien, when it saw her, didn't attack her immediately. I think it was because of the temperature. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, like, like she sees the alien, and I'm pretty sure the alien sees her, unless the alien was asleep, and then she runs in the closet. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know. And I thought she was using the cat as bait at first, and I I don't know entirely if that's what happened. One, one think piece that I read about it was saying the reason the alien didn't attack her is that it was grossed <clears throat> out by her protruding butthole. <laughs> <laughs> Why she got the like butthole an mouse? <laughs> looks like an anthill. It does. <laughs> no, you know her butthole looks like an anthill. Don't lie. The alien was quoted as saying it needs some flaps to pull back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not what I mean. <laughs> Joseph, Joseph. <laughs> and I was like, bitch. <laughs> There's a lot of white people on this spaceship. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't, I could not goad Matt into to doing the Joseph Joseph review of Alien. The great thing about uh, phone Matt is phone Matt does not get goaded. <laughs> no goading. Like I am currently, I'm just like flipping through Twitter, just trying to see what's up with the world. Oh shit! Is that an Android? Oh hell no! <laughs> yeah. Um. So I think Ridley Scott is one of those directors who. Can we get a realness on that name? What Ridley Scott? Yeah, I'm well, curious he's English. Now. I feel like that's got to be that's his a real dope name. ass name. That sounds like someone Johnny Depp would play in a movie. Yeah, that's his real name, man, Sir Ridley Scott. Fuck yeah. Also, his brother just straight up jumped off a bridge one day. Yep. Oh. For fun? No, to kill himself. I mean, I guess you'd call it for fun. (laughs) His brother's super extreme. His brother Top Gun. Yeah. Oh, really? Among other movies. What was his name? Tony Scott. Tony Scott. uh, uh, Did he do um, uh, the Tarantino one? uh, True Romance. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't he do Man on Fire, too? I think Denzel, so. That or is that Ridley? Right. He was really good at. Uh, oh, that's right. He was really yeah. good at the the revenge movie. Mm-hmm. He had cancer, right? Yeah, that was the story, right? It was that he was terminal, so he just decided to end it. Yeah, he did Man on Fire. He did a lot of good movies. Yeah, Top Gun. Top Gun, Man on Fire. I think he did Days of Th- Crimson Tide. That was the other Tarantino one. Ooh, last, oh, Boy last Boy Scout. Scout. Yeah, Last Boy Scout. I thought that was and Shane, Thunder, yeah. I, I knew Shane Black wrote Last Boy Scout. I thought he also directed it. Nope. nope. Oh, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yeah. He was the, he was the man. Uh, the, I think the Scott brothers have the same thing going on as like an Oliver Stone, <coughs> but less so, where it's like they're really... 
not so much Oliver Stone. That's a bad example. But they were really good at, they're really into the visual and they're really into making things look like fucking flashy and mm-hmm. cool and didn't really give that much of a shit about the story. That's why you look through their filmography and there's like a lot of good stuff and then there's like a bunch of, bunch of shit in there too. Yeah. I actually watched Top Gun a couple weeks ago uh, for the first time in a while. Still a great movie. I mean, it's corny as fuck, but like, man, all the flying scenes are like really well yeah, shot. Fucking volleyball I mean, volleyball awesome. scene, dude. Volleyball me? scene. Ugh. It, Tony Scott amazingly is like the less cerebral version of Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's more honest because yeah. Ridley Scott is like not that cerebral. Yeah. But like Prometheus. He's, the id. He's like Ridley Scott's id. Would you say that Prometheus is like a normal guy's attempt at being profound? Mm. Ooh. That's a good ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Which is like totally my demographic. I'm like, oh, I kinda get what he's going for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I feel like it's just a flawed attempt at being profound. Yeah. I think it's a little too stupid to be a normal guy's take on being profound. It's just a little too stupid. What are we talking about? Prometheus. I haven't seen it. It's good. The Ridley Scott, uh, Alien Covenant, The Martian, Exodus, Gods and Kings, which is, who boy, one of the one of the, the worst ones I've oh, seen. Oh yeah, God, I, I I just remember watching the trailer for that and going, who the fuck would watch this? The movie? Counselor, which was also really bad. Uh, Prometheus, which is kind of good, kind of bad. Robin Hood, terrible. Body of Lies, I don't even really remember that one. American Gangster, which is kind of good, kind of bad. They tried to kill my wife. <laughs> is that uh, is that Body of Lies? No, it's American Gangster. Yeah, sorry. Uh, a lot of good, a lot of bad. Like Gladiator is the perfect Ridley Scott movie, oh, yeah. where it's like it's it's a pretty good movie, but then it also inspired the worst uh, action movie trend, like the shaky cam high the Which lots movie? of cuts gladiator yeah rapid cut yeah. oh that's a good ass roll. movie dude oh joey's leaving i know i gotta go host a show and my co-host won't be there so okay pizza hacker go. yeah for everybody who's listening to this from the past hey you guys i got a website now it's just joeyavery.com check it out oh shit that's <laughs> oh you did gi jane too yeah that's solid it's kind of a stupid movie. I mean, it's good. The The battle scenes at the end look so budget. Mm-hmm. You know what I think is uh, is better than people give it credit for? Is Matchstick Men. I don't think I ever saw that. I never saw it. Fucking Nick Cage, Cage and Sam Rockwell. Ooh, I thought you were going to say the N-word just now. Whoa. You, I think you're, uh, just, so, you're just geared to that. I, I Yeah, you said fucking, and then you had the N sound, and I was like, whoa, what's happening? But it's it's fine. Uh, also from the IMDb trivia, uh, Dan O'Bannon, the writer of Alien, had Crohn's disease. So the whole movie was about having to take a dump. Yeah, basically. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if, if poop transplants had only been invented mm-hmm. in 1979, we might not have had Alien. Uh, I got an email. Yo, Vince, based on your recommendation, I saw Tony Erdman and really loved it. I also found out that Paramount is remaking it with Jack Nicholson and Kristen Wiig and with Adam McKay and Will Ferrell signed on as producers. Any thoughts on how this might go? On the one hand, I want to be hopeful because it's Jack Nicholson, but on the other, it's an attempt to remake a nearly flawless movie. Just curious about your thoughts. Thanks in advance and fraud on. Um, I don't know. Like Once you see a good movie... I, like, do you really need to see the remake? No matter what the remake is. Like, I kind of think that's for people who didn't see the original. What's Tony Erdman? It's a really good German movie. Oh, never even heard of it. 
you should see it it's a it's uh it's great it's yeah it's the it's the ultimate refuting of the stereotype that germans aren't funny because it's a pretty funny movie mm. and it's also german and it's very german i don't believe you yeah you gotta see it uh so in a word yeah. i think it's gonna go badly like i can't imagine i can't imagine being a fan of an original of source material and, and being excited about a remake like Let's, if you're that big of a fan you it you're automatically going to go like, well, there's no way it's going to be better. Especially of a comedy. Anytime you take like a good foreign comedy and then an American producer gets a hold of it, it tends to be like, hey, let's just draw dicks all over this. It's like, I kind of think in a in like a paradoxical way that the key to making a good comedy is to take the story kind of seriously. Because the minute you stop taking the story seriously, it's kind of just becomes this weird improv-y, who cares kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I always felt like that was the true genius behind The Big Lebowski was like, the plot kind of takes a back seat, but you can tell that the Coen brothers are still so devoted right. to like crafting this, this like Chandler-esque plot with all the twists and everything. It's like maybe not a comedy. Like you have to commit to the point that it might not be a comedy for mm-hmm. the jokes to really work. Yeah, I agree. Matt's got a lot of thoughts on this, clearly. Yeah, I like uh, remakes better than the original all the time. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. (laughs) You know, when I planned this show, I I was like, you know who has has a lot of insight into the way the world works? It's Phone Matt. Oh, Phone Matt has got a lot of things to say. Well, Skype Matt's even worse because Skype Matt allows unfettered phone access to Matt. To Skype Matt, who can then play video games or right. watch fight it's, videos. It's phone Matt with Wi-Fi, which yeah. is bad. It's yeah. a bad combo. Listen, I'm paying attention. I just sometimes you guys talk about boring things like German movies and remakes. And what do you want to talk movies. about, Matt? I dude, you want to know what I want to talk about? You know, like for real. Let's just let's just talk about feelings. Like we never do that. Okay, how do you feel? How's your love life? My love life is good. Is it? I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of like, you know, I'm I'm dating someone that I like a lot, but she's, uh, um, you know, she's not ready to commit. Oh. And so, and and uh, you know, I kind of I want her to commit, but uh, but she she's exiting another relationship. Mm. Uh, are you, you know, are you cuckolding another man? No, not no, no. I mean, no, not like legally. Yeah. So they were. <laughs> she was married. Uh, she's technically still married, but they've been they've been separated for a while. Um, and uh, and you know, I was like, oh, that's no big deal. I, I get, and then now I'm kind of realizing like that kind of makes it harder to get. It's hard to get into a relationship with someone who who is is married. getting. Who's getting divorced, uh-huh, uh-huh. Vince? Yeah, okay. And, and I, you know, I like her a lot, and and so it's tough. But you know, every every, you know, you just gotta take it one step at a time. Gotta be present. Mm-hmm. You got you gotta enjoy what you have. Have you asked uh, if she wants to have children together? Um, that could no. really. I mean, that could you know that that, that makes her commit right away. Yeah, but I don't shortcut. Think that, she, I mean, I haven't asked, but she's basically said like, you know, she's some, she'll be like, you know, sometimes I feel bad that we're, we're together because, uh, 
you probably want children at some point and I don't know if I want that. And part of me is like whenever someone says they don't want kids, I'm always like, why are you lying? <laughs> um, but uh, but it might be true. Maybe she doesn't want kids. And I, I definitely want kids. But at the same time, I don't want them now. So everything seems to be kind of like, hey, that's perfect. I don't even want kids now. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, mm-hmm. eventually you change their minds. My hope is that I get her pregnant accidentally. Yeah. Um, and then I could have, then I finally have, you know, some kids, <laughs> but I don't want to get her pregnant accidentally now. Cause now is not the right time right. for LA Matt to be LA, LA dad, Matt. Yeah. That'd be hard. Cause you, you're already living with your dad. Yeah. That's too many dads. <laughs> you can't have, you can't have too many dads under the same roof. That's too many dads. So <laughs> too you know, many dads, too many dads. Um, yeah, so I gotta figure, you know, gotta figure that out. But she's, uh, she's great though. She's, she's beautiful. She's <laughs> Do you smart. remember the the why too many cooks is actually about white privilege? Uh, <laughs> oh, think piece no. that was a no, really good I one. Don't. Yeah. Thank God I don't. Wait. Is that a real think piece? Yeah, there was a real think piece, and it was like it was like uh, only white people could conceive of like a comfortable suburban living where like a dad wears a sweater and grins. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. so. What? So yeah. <laughs> That's insane. It's a, it's a it's a takeoff on sitcoms. Right, but it was talking about how like every sitcom was about white suburbia and marginalized black people and that kind of thing. So I mean, there was like That's a great. Not- you can't parody a thing without becoming a thing, apparently. Right. right. That's not... Mm, uh, okay, here's well, the thing. And if you want to be fair, it's like, okay, there, there's probably a fair argument in representation in 80 sitcoms. That's yeah, a fair but argument. But, but di- to Vince's different... point, to say that this thing you're you're satiring makes you part of that is... Um, well, that's why we have things. It's, pro- it's problematic. Yeah, it is problematic. Yeah. Oh my God! That's the uh, it's uh, it's it's weird to get annoyed from a think piece from so long ago, but that is yeah. very annoying. <laughs> that's the very... only time I'm ever like, yeah, fucking media elites. Like, I think the whole concept <laughs> of a media elite is so stupid. But then, like, I'll read, you know, David Brooks, or I'll mm-hmm. read some stupid think piece, and I'm like, God, no, no, I, I, yeah, Thomas Friedman for me. I'm like, oh Wait, yeah, Tom, uh, media elites are out of touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but did a media elite write that, or was it a fucking medium post? No, that's true. That's true. No, it was like a Slate article. Yeah, so that's like some that's like some college kid who Slate you know. is right in between. Slate Slate is right in between. Right, it could either be some it, college. It's not kid. about. See, everybody like blames the 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 outlet, but like every outlet does investigative reporting, and then they do garbage, and you know, some do more than others, but everybody does everything at 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 this point. So. It kind of just depends on the writer. Like so, sometimes, you know, you're reading like a 22 year old writer who has to shout to be heard, and you gotta, you like the take has to be hot. Like the the less famous you are, the hotter the take has to be. Like David Brooks can put out some bullshit because he's already writing for the New York Times. He can be like, oh yeah, the president's a child, and everybody's like, oh man, that's a fucking flaming hot take right there. But then how do right. you explain like your Skip Bayless's of the world, where like his entire famousness is? Yeah, that's true. Well, he's an, he's an anomaly. I, I don't know that he's an well, anomaly. Like Stephen A. Smith. But, I mean, some people make their bones on hot takes, and mm-hmm. that's what they've always done. And, you know, they're just like a they're just like, like a beaver that builds dams. And they're like, I'll never stop being hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, if you start off with hot takes, and you're going to just continue, 
you're gonna you have to keep out hotting your take until yeah. eventually you're just like lava takes all Cause, the time because well, here's the thing you can be either the guy who made his bones on hot takes and everybody's expecting a hot take from you and so you have to make them hotter or you can be the middle of the road guy to where like anything that you write that slightly hot seems insanely hot like oh shit right, right, like, right, right. you know like if you're an old fusty new york times editorial guy who doesn't write anything crazy and you suddenly come out with oh the president's a child and suddenly like that's news yeah I, I i'd love to to start writing hot takes i feel like i've got some good ones what's what's the best hot take you can come up yeah come up with off the top of your head give us your hottest take uh, off the top of my head, um, the Beatles were racist. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, just because just the way they appropriated black music, um, and John Lennon said the N word in a song once. Um, so the Beatles were racist. That's my. All right, I, I can outdo that. I, I do think. I, I, I think. I do think. Remember a few years back where there was that one clip of the Beatles going around where they like they did kind of like a a parody of like a retarded person while they were on stage and people were like ah oh, see the Beatles are terrible. Yeah, I don't remember. That. You don't remember <laughs> oh, that? Dude. No. I do think that uh, John Lennon is an asshole and we don't talk about it enough. Uh huh. Oh, well, okay. So here's the thing I just don't think it's based on him mocking a retarded person once, but I do so, think that John Lennon is is pretty unquestionably an asshole. Mm-hmm. Did he yeah, beat his I wife? Mean, John Lennon is, yeah. is defin- definitely an, uh, an asshole. Did a lot of fucked up thing. Beat his wife. I mean, there you was know. like the what was the lost the John Lennon's lost weekend where he just like skipped out on his family for a while. Right. Oh yeah, and and yeah, he was with um. Oh my God, what's her name? Uh, Yoko John ono? Lennon's other asian yoko ono no no he had another oh um oh may pang so during his like um may fung yi pang um was john lennon's girlfriend during his like lost weekend or whatever it was mm-hmm. in like 1973 where ono and 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 john like uh they separated and then he was like in la and he was just like banging may pang he was like he was la john he's like what this isn't john lennon he totally went he was he went la john with it real like hardcore la john and uh and then yeah and then eventually he came back to 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 yoko and and i I guess it all worked out but um did he invent yellow fever i don't know if he invented it i feel like it was a combination of john uh, of john lennon and Kiefer sutherland in young guns yeah, it could be those things. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But he definitely, he made it cool. And Madam, Madam Butterfly. You guys, everything really sucks out there. You guys take care out there. Including this podcast. This podcast sucks. This podcast is terrible. Yeah. Patreon.com slash broadcast if you want to Give donate to money. this shitty podcast. Give us your money. Listen, this was, I thought all in all, other than the time where we struggled, you know. <laughs> Hey, I'm going to edit that out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, you really shouldn't because I think people need to see us struggle. <laughs> they need to understand Without the struggle, struggle, there is no podcast progress. Hashtag the struggle is real. Yeah. Hashtag sounds like the broadcast, but okay. By the way, if you go to a Facebook group that has but okay at the end, it's left book and check it out. It's amazing. Mm. <laughs> Brendan, you want to take us on out of here? Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening this week. Matt, anything to plug? Uh, go to Left Book 
<laughs> and um, hey, if someone wants to uh, to to build my website, uh, hit me up. Uh, my website. Uh, my, Do my, his my, physical, my, intellectual, and emotional labor. Yeah. Yes, please. And I'll, but I'll give you money. Uh, well, I mean, honestly, I do need a new website, but that just came because I was thinking about saying my website, and then I realized I have a bad website. Fatdweeb.com. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, email us. It still makes you laugh every time. <laughs> yeah, me too. Fatdweeb. So they called me in college. <laughs> Uh, email us broadcast at gmail.com Vince what is the Google voice number 415-275-0030 okay for realsies this time until next week good night and good chins yeah good episode guys